<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by my friend Johnny Burka. Johnny is the president and CEO of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. He's one of the foremost leading thinkers on the new right, that young, hungry, sappy segment of the American right, of which this show is very much conscientiously a part. We look forward to bringing on Johnny. We expect we're going to touch on some topics of political economy and just kind of what is conservatism and some of these kind of deep, thorny issues that we love to talk about on this show. Until then, just a couple of topics that I want to talk about. First of all, right off the top, to my fellow Jews in the audience, Shana Tova. Hope you had a lovely Russia Shana holiday. May it be a good and sweet year. As far as what's happening out there on the political agenda, before we turn the mic over to Johnny Burka, one thing that I want to talk about with y'all is Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, has a new bill. That would be a federal 15-week ban on abortion. There's been a lot of back and forth, a lot of controversy about this bill. The controversy seems to be along numerous lines. I think the first and foremost thing that a lot of people on the right, at least kind of in the Republican establishment class, the consulting class, the K Street class, the Beltway class, the main issue that they seem to have an issue with is the fact that we're talking about abortion at all. And that's not wholly unreasonable. And I'm as pro-life as they come. I literally flew to North Carolina just for the day a little over a week ago to speak at a pro-life symposium there. I have written and spoken on this issue at at great length. Just last month, I was in Wyoming to do the same at a separate conference out there. This issue is near and dear to my heart, near and dear to my heart. But we can still believe that and simultaneously recognize that there is some data trickling in to suggest that this issue might be a bit of a political vulnerability, at least in some jurisdictions, in some states, in some competitive congressional races across the country. There's nothing wrong with with conceding that. That's kind of just living in reality. So from that perspective, I guess I understand why some people are reticent or reluctant to talk about this Lindsey Graham bill. Another reason that I think some are properly reluctant about this 15-week national abortion ban is the fact that it's Lindsey Graham. I mean, it's Lindsey Graham. Come on, people. I mean, this is kind of like the, you know, the former John McCain top ally, the saber-rattling, gun-toting neocon, let's spread democracy to the whole world, open borders, Lindsey, one of the most pro-amnesty senators out there. I mean, the guy is not a particularly conservative senator. So if you're a strong conservative like myself or like y'all in the audience here, I think you have every reason to kind of look at Lindsey Graham and basically saying, uh, what? 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 I mean, like, why is this coming from Lindsey Graham right now? So there's a little skepticism on, on those lines, too, and I understand that. The issue that I want to talk about here, though, is there are some people objecting because the federal government, they claim, has no role in the abortion business. This is a state's issue, a state's rights issue, a federalism issue. This is a whole bunch of hogwash. This is total nonsense, and we need to explain why. The Republican Party platform, literally the RNC platform, going back at least to the Reagan-Bush re-election ticket of 1984, has called for a federal 
right to life provision, whether that comes in the form of the 14th Amendment or, as I think has been more often the case, in the specific form of the RNC platform calling for an amendment to the Constitution to call for a national right to life amendment. But as the case may be, as my friend Josh Craig and I wrote in an op-ed for Newsweek back in July, you don't actually need a constitutional amendment. All you need to do is interpret the 14th Amendment properly. All you have to do is interpret the 14th Amendment properly. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, among its numerous provisions, says, quote, nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. My own kind of quibble with the bill is that this obviously is not going to pass. I mean, to put it mildly here, uh, there's just no way that, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is still the speaker. So there's two reasons to do the bill. One is you're trying to just make Democrats take a tough vote. The other reason is that you're trying to give the Republican Senate candidates across the country a platform to run on. They can kind of just point to the bill and say, that's what I support. Well, the latter makes a lot of sense, I suppose. I mean, it depends on how many candidates are kind of picking it up and running with it. I haven't necessarily seen a a tally. The former... I mean, on on the former, if you're trying to make the Democrats take a tough vote, if that's all you're trying to do, then why 15 weeks? Why not like 20 weeks? Again, if the bill is not going to pass, if if all you're trying to do is force a tough vote, then shouldn't you do 20 weeks? Maybe maybe even 22 weeks? I don't know. But in any event, I just wanted to quickly dispel the notion that the federal government has nothing to do with abortion. Of course it does. It's right there in the 14th Amendment. And more fundamentally, more fundamentally, the same way that Abraham Lincoln said to Stephen Douglas in his famous debates in 1858, that the fundamental question is not one of popular sovereignty, of majoritarianism when it comes to the rights of humanity, of the fundamental rights of persons. No, the fundamental question is whether we are talking about persons, persons, whether it was black men in 1858 or unborn persons today. That answers the question. So from that perspective alone, I think the critics of this legislation are deeply misguided. But let's take it to a quick commercial break. On the other side, we will be right back with Johnny Burka. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So as previously mentioned, just thrilled this week to bring on my friend and from my perspective, really one of the rising up and coming stars in the broader right of center conservative intellectual firmament. That, of course, is my friend Johnny Burka, who is the president and CEO of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Got that title at a remarkably young age, but it couldn't have gone to a better candidate. So, Johnny, thanks so much for joining this week. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Josh. So for those less familiar, let's just kind of get that out of the way right off the top. What What is ISI? What is what is Intercollegiate Studies Institute? Kind of tell us more about the org. Yeah, so I mean, the central claim of ISI is that most of the problems that we're experiencing in contemporary society, the capture of nearly every major institution, 
uh, government and business by the left really had its origins on the university campus and the indoctrination that began really, you know, as, as early as the 1940s, but really kind of reached its, uh, its, its force uh, in the 1960s. And so our aim is really to go back to the source to educate students uh, in uh, the foundations of Western civilization, the foundations of the American regime, uh, with the hope of, of building a counter elite uh, who can help take back the country one institution at a time. And we were actually founded in 1953. So we're the oldest conservative organization in America, founded by William F. Buckley Jr., um, uh, who had written God and Man at Yale. And so we've been, you know, for the last 70 years doing over 150 educational programs a year, uh, lectures, debates, and conferences uh, for college students. It's kind of remarkable when you say that, because when people think of William F. Buckley, I think the first organization that most people think of is National Review. But that was founded, I think, two years later in 1955. Right. So ISI both predates National Review and was William F. Buckley's kind of original project. So really remarkable when you, when you phrase it like that. So. Uh, tell us more about this because you you took over the position ISI, I believe, a couple of years ago in 2020. So what kind of changes have you put in and what what is your your vision more broadly for where the organization should go in the 21st century? I mean, just given just the remarkable uphill climate we face, obviously, on the American University campus and how under siege we are. What, what has been your approach since you got there? Mm -hmm. Well, I kind of think of ISI, there's there's two aspects to it. There's the content that we're introducing students to, and then there's the the business model of ISI. And on the business model of ISI, I, I sort of see ISI a bit like a, a a venture capital fund investing in young talent. And I think one of the unique things that ISI brings to the table is that we're actually able, and I think we're probably one of the only organizations that does this, to bring the best students from Harvard and Yale but put them together in a in a room with the best students from Hillsdale College and Thomas Aquinas, with the best students from University of Alabama and University of Wisconsin. And so you're able to have this kind of a leadership class of the, the most talented students from all regions, all schools in the country, and you bring them together and you're really introducing them, uh, you know, to, to sort of classic works, you know, the great men and women throughout history, but it's all with the aim of inspiring them towards uh, towards action. And I think of, you know, a couple couple people come to mind, but I think one of our most successful recent alums is Nate Hockman, who started an ISI campus newspaper when he was at Colorado College. Uh, he had ISI funded journalism internships nearly every year when he was in school. And then he was the ISI fellow at National Review, where we helped to, to fund his salary for his first year. And then they hired him full time. And, uh, you know, he's really done groundbreaking reporting on the trucker protests, on Ilya Shapiro being canceled at Georgetown, and in many other things. And I, I think the impact of those bets well-placed in young people is really kind of the, the success of the ISI model. Yeah, it's funny. It's actually really funny you mentioned Nate. I was listening to his interview with Doug Blair on the Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal podcast, literally probably 25 minutes before I came on air to record this with you. And I texted Nate afterwards. I was like, great job, Nate. So that's that's really funny. We'll definitely get Nate on this podcast a little later on as well. So we're talking here about kind of the formation of the American conservative movement and kind of its modern post-war incarnation, William F. Buckley, kind of going back to where it all got started. So I guess I want to ask you a question that you asked me when, you know, you graciously had me on the ISI podcast about a year ago, or maybe a little less than that, I can't quite remember. 
what is conservatism? I think I, I kind of gave a somewhat meandering answer on that ISI podcast. So I'm wondering if you can do a little better because it's not necessarily as easy or straightforward a question as I think many might believe. Yeah, it's, that, that is a challenge. I mean, I think, I think um, there are aspects. So, th- so there's, I think, a, a backwards and a forward looking aspect. The backward a- aspect to conservatism is that you're, you're trying to conserve a patrimony. There's a tradition that's being handed down uh, at, at ISI. You know, we believe that America has uh, embraced uh, throughout its history some of the best traditions for the West. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to introduce students, and I think this is sort of at, at the heart of the conservatism, to that patrimony that begins in Jerusalem, that goes through ancient Greece and Rome, uh, to London and then culminates with the American experiment in liberty in Philadelphia. So I think part of it is really, you know, conservatism is really developing a love for and appreciation of that great tradition. Uh, but then the, the second component to conservatism is really cultivation. It's, it's, it's taking, and I mean cultivation in a, a very active sense, it's taking, taking stock of the country as it is today you know, not at what, not that it not as it was necessarily at the time of the founding in 1776, but taking stock of it today and the institutions that we have, the culture we have, in figuring out how can we be a creative force to really re- restore the importance of of faith, of family, and of the American nation and uh, defending the American way of life. And so, when, when we're looking back to the past, it's not uh, out of a sense of nostalgia. It's out of a sense of, you know, if you if you actually listen to, to biographies of great men and women, if you have these people on your brain, you're going to be more apt to act in a heroic way in our contemporary circumstances. So I think a lot of folks, when they kind of survey the institutional conservative landscape, tend to think of ISI at least instinctively as being in the more kind of paleocon wing of the conservative movement. I mean, you know, folks like Russell Kirk, who was obviously a huge proponent of, of Burkean traditionalism, which is a lot of what you're talking about here. I'm certainly a huge proponent of, of that school of thought myself. Uh, you know, Daniel McCarthy, who I think is certainly very much of the paleoconservative school of thought. Would that be a fair description of ISI or, or does ISI and kind of the programs that you kind of try to teach to the college students, is it kind of more of a broader intellectual kind of swath of the landscape? So I would acknowledge that there there's, there is a reputation uh, for ISI being more traditionalist and it's outlook and i think that that is certainly near and dear to my heart and to many of our professors and students but if you look at isi historically in different eras you know the tent has kind of expanded in different directions so it was originally founded as the intercollegiate society of individualists oh, so wow. it's frank chodorov uh inspired by people like albert j knock it really the individualist more libertarian school of thought was actually at the genesis of isi uh, but then you have sort of a funny history where Russell Kirk was invited to join the board and he had said that he was repulsed by individualism. <laughs> he thought it was a hideous solitude that in the end it would lead to death and destruction and that what you really needed was to sort of re-enchant students' imagination, you know, not with with individualist philosophy, but with great great literature, great history, great art. And so the tent then expanded. ISI even uh, modified its mission to to include a broader approach to sort of Western Western civilization. And you know, I, I would say in periods, it, it's uh, there. You know, Frank Myers' fusionism has played a significant role in ISI, and then Kirkian traditionalism, and then you know now. So I think it 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 it, it one is a big tent, but also we want to you know 
take stock of the the current moment. And I think when you take a look at our programming, we, we do something that I think few organizations do, which is we want to equip students to to be able to to fight the cultural battles of our time uh, and, and sort of all those cultural flashpoints, which are in the news constantly. So we do that, but we also want to help order our students loves in the right way, help them to love what is good and true is beautiful. So we, we take, you know, the debates about immigration or debates about transgenderism uh, just as seriously in terms of our content and programming as we would take sitting down and, and reading Plato or Aristotle or Augustine or Alexander Hamilton. And so we, you know, we want, we want to develop the whole person at ISI because we, we believe that in America right now, we have the task of really sort of rebuilding civilization. And that includes good art and architecture as well as it does, you know, winning some of these political fights. So I, I think I was one of probably just a handful of people in the past year or two. I imagine that you were also among that handful of people that was following this really kind of in the weeds conservative nerd out back and forth between Michael Anton of Hillsdale and Claremont Institute and, and Paul Gottfried. And the two of them in kind of this back and forth, which I think was, if I recall, was mostly playing out on the American Greatness site. They were really kind of kind of openly discussing with one another whether the the old the old um, the old weapons of war between kind of the Claremont Hillsdale school of thought, so to speak. That's a, at least how Anton would phrase it, and then kind of the old Paleocon school of thought. Whether whether it's time to kind of make peace, and whether basically we have kind of come to realize that th that we actually agree on the threats, broadly speaking, whether it comes to immigration or foreign policy. It was really interesting to see that Michael Anton basically conceded that that the Paleocons were, were were effectively right on foreign policy. I mean, you know, I, I, we, we we get more in the weeds on that. There's this third way foreign policy between. I isolationism, neoconservatism. But all that to say, you know, you are very much kind of straddling this divide. You're the president and CEO of ISI. You're a Hillsdale College alum. And I think like me, you're also an alum of the Claremont Institute's alumni programs, or you're an alum of their fellowship programs. So uh, how do you see that? I mean, do you see kind of the, the, the Claremont school, this kind of more Straussian school, kind of making peace with the paleocons? I, I certainly think that in matters of practical policy, and also in matters of, you know, just just straight up priorities, cultural priorities, um, there are very few areas of disagreement between the two camps today. I think most of the the Stra West Coast Straussians would acknowledge that there was probably, you know, during the George Bush years, with with exceptions, maybe Angelo Cotavia, but you know, th there was probably an overemphasis placed on sort of abstract ideals and in sort of principles uh at the expense of the particular so i think most of them would say you know th they would acknowledge that that was the case i know michael uh, certainly does but i think when it comes down to the issues today whether it's sort of an overextended uh american foreign policy um there would be mutual agreement um you know whether it's issues like trade sort of domestic uh manufacturing there would be agreement, immigration, there would be agreement, the importance of family, total agreement, the importance of faith. So, so I think in, in a practical sense, you, you have to get somewhat theoretical. And, and I think those divisions, there's a lot of work that needs to be done together. But, you know, once we sort of save America and rebuild the West, we can kind of fight and quibble about some of the details. But I don't, I don't see much difference in practice with paleocons and West Coast Drowsians. 
I want to continue this discussion on the other side of, of a quick commercial break. I want to kind of get into the recent National Conservatism Conference and then kind of get into your very, very interesting remarks at that particular conference. But let's take it to a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Johnny, you and I both spoke at the recent National Conservatism Conference here in Miami, Florida. It was the third U.S.-based conference. I think you and I have both been pretty involved with the National Conservatism Movement for the past three or four years since it really got going. Yoram Hazoni, who I think is kind of the preeminent leader of this movement, is a previous guest on this podcast. So what is national conservatism, first of all, and is it any different than conservatism as you defined it in the previous segment? I think national conservatism is the heir to the federalist tradition of uh, the Washington administration, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, uh, and that extends through the Whig tradition and then what became the, the tradition of Lincoln's Republican Party, which was essentially a strong but limited federal government. Uh, that secured the ends of the preamble of the Constitution as, as fundamentally the ends of American government. Um, and so I, I really see NatCon as a recovery of that historic American legacy, but updated to meet the challenges that we have today. Uh, on, in, in the realm of foreign policy, that would be China, which I think sits at the intersection of both national security and economic and, and cultural challenges. So is national conservatism the future of the conservative movement, you think? Yeah, I would I would say so. I think there's um I think I think there's I think national so I would say in the wake of um Trump and 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 in in post Trump, you know, the right has to figure out where it needs to go and I think national conservatism well, well, it is a broad coalition. I, I don't think everyone, you know, I, th I think there's certainly a core areas of agreement. I think there's also areas of disagreement. So I would say it's to the extent it still is in the process of becoming right, right now. Right. But I think it, it probably presents th there's a lot of uh, alternatives that are being posited for for where the right should go. Uh, some of us, some people are trying to sort of bring it back to fusionism and libertarianism. And then there's also this sort of you know, Pandora's box of kind of post-liberal visions for what the country might need. And and I would say national conservatism uh, can meet some of the issues that post-liberalism identifies, just general critiques of liberalism, but while still situating the response within the American tradition, which I think is important that we draw from our historic resources and not exclusively try to import, you know, more foreign ideologies. Yeah, very much so. And I think 
what you said when you were defining national conservatism, which is my single favorite thing, maybe I've heard you say on this whole podcast so far. I think this is like probably the strongest area of Josh Hammer, Johnny Burke overlap is like this strong emphasis on the preamble. Like I, that was really music to my ears when you were talking about that. Um, we haven't really done a deep jurisprudential nerd out session on this podcast yet, but for the listeners who may follow my independent work, kind of this strong emphasis on the preamble is very much kind of the bread and butter of my side jurisprudential project on what I call common good originalism, which I very deliberately view as a natural corollary to kind of the common good capitalism that folks like our previous guest, Oren Cass, folks like Julius Kron in American Affairs Journal, and certainly folks like you, Johnny, have, I think, been at the forefront of kind of getting back into the mainstream right-of-center dialogue. And you actually talked about this. Your your speech at the NACON conference, I think, was, was directly on this. And it was a really, really interesting historical deep dive, in fact, touching on the Civil War and the Confederacy. And tell us, tell us about that. Tell us about your speech at the National Conservatism Conference and how it fits into this kind of this vision that we're getting at here. Absolutely. Well, some of this was actually a pretty recent discovery for me. I mean, I, I was always uh, on board with your, uh, your your sort of the the preeminence of the preamble and and the, the constitutional interpretation that you've been doing with that. Uh, but I was actually prepping for this speech on economic patriotism and the forgotten tradition of the American School of Economics. And what I discovered doing this uh, research was that. Uh, actually, you know, one of the I thought it was pretty amusing because one of the critiques of your common good constitutionalism is that, you know, it's it's not American. This is sort of a European statist, maybe even a fascist way of reading, you know, the American Constitution, which is totally bogus, of course. But what you actually find is that the Confederacy, when they you know, established their constitution, they basically copied and pasted the American U.S. Constitution but they did two very important things. One with the preamble, they actually removed uh, common defense, perfect union, uh, and um, common defense, perfect union, and- General welfare? General yeah. welfare, right, from the preamble. So they, they essentially took the common good out of American right. constitutionalism. Right. But then then what did that mean in practice? Then we get to the, the common good uh, economics, common good capitalism, and they specifically prohibited um, any infrastructure spending, tariffs, or subsidies to foster uh, domestic manufacturing. Uh, so, so there, there you have it. Really, the the genesis of this anti common good tradition isn't the American Constitution; it's really the Confederate South, and the consequences of that in practice were disastrous. Uh, the Confederacy, because they they had such an anti-industry, obviously pro-slavery position, um, you know, they did not have the the material uh, up against the North to actually win, win the Civil War. And what they ended up having to resort to, and I think this is actually really important for critics of, of common good originalism and common good capitalism, is they had to resort to sort of a state socialism they had to nationalize factories in order to get what the North had in a more voluntary way. And so the absence of industry, the absence of protection actually led them on a quicker path to what effectively was a form of communism and then total deindustrialization and economic devastation for the next century, whereas the North followed a different course. And uh, I, I think it's very instructive today as we face off against China and the Chinese Communist Party, there are essentially people arguing that we need to embrace the 
Confederate view of political economy, which, you know, seems absolutely ludicrous to me. Right. And Oren Caswell, I just mentioned in his little introductory note to your essay on the American Compass site, you know, he said, you know, the, the, the fact that an evil regime, like the fact that Stalin or Hitler had X policy does not necessarily ipso facto invalidate X policy. But that's not necessarily what you're saying. You're not saying that because the Confederacy happened to be evil. We're saying that the Confederacy was a demonstrable failure. I mean, as like an empirical assessment of it, it was evil, obviously, but as an empirical assessment, more relevant to the point, the economic system that they put in place simply did not work. It did not redound to the durability of this purported nation state for more than just a handful of years now. But I, I do want to follow up. So you alluded to the American system, which I think you and I are are, are both familiar with. That's kind of made a comeback in recent years. You know, I think probably for, 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 for decades and decades and kind of the more libertarian leaning wings of the movement, I think folks kind of deliberately uh, chose to forget the American system. Perhaps we might say they were kind of retconning American history if you want to be a little, um, you know, a, a poke the bear a little more to say that they were kind of writing it out of American history. So what, what is the American system of economic thought for the listeners of the podcast who might not be familiar with that? Sure. Well, I think, and I'll give the, the, I'll try to do this as briefly as I can. The founding fathers, starting with, you know, Washington, Hamilton, they fought the, the Revolutionary War to establish economic freedom and political and economic independence in the United States. They established the world's largest free trade zone, but it was for the benefit of Americans alone, as Pat Buchanan puts it. They protected this domestic free market with a tariff wall. This was the first piece of legislation that Washington passed. It was sponsored by Madison. And from there, uh, it was Alexander Hamilton at the Treasury Department, specifically in his report on manufacturers, who laid out this vision of economics that had this free domestic market, but there were key strategic investments by the federal government in areas of tariffs, infrastructure, national bank, and subsidies for key industries that could be essential for national security. And so that economic system, while there were critics like Thomas Jefferson, uh, most of the leading founders reconciled themselves to that tradition. And that became the American School of Economics. And the home for that school was really Philadelphia, where a father and son, Matthew, Matthew Carey, who was an Irish nationalist, and his son, Henry Charles Carey, were sort of the key proponents of that school. And they honestly did what American Compass is doing, but it was in Philadelphia. They had a lot of the founders involved. The father advised Hamilton at the Treasury Department. The son advised Lincoln uh, at his Treasury Department. And this became the economic platform of the Republican Party from the time of the Civil War to World War One. What it reminds me of, there was an excellent essay that my Edmund Burke Foundation colleague David Brog had at American Affairs Journal a couple of years ago now, where he, he David in this, in this essay, the title of the essay for the listeners who are curious is, is entitled, quote, Up from Laissez-Faire Reclaiming Conservative Economics. And in this essay, he quotes Lincoln, who at this point is in his mid to late 20s. So in 1832, in his, in his first speech as a candidate for public office, Lincoln introduced himself as follows, quote, this is Lincoln now talking, quote, my politics are short and sweet like the old woman's dance. I am in favor of a national bank. I am in favor of the internal improvement system and a higher protective tariff. So, you know, that, that, that was the American system, like you just described, as, as it developed from, from Hamilton through Henry Clay, through Abraham Lincoln. 
what do you attribute for kind of the resurgence in recent years of of interest in the in the American system? Because uh, I, I I have my own thoughts on that why it's getting re- renewed attention, but I'd be curious for your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's two things uh, that I'll say briefly, and then I want to make another comment. The the first thing is that we had the you know experience of deindustrialization and the American middle class really just getting hammered, and the belief that the that that young people today are not going to be able to live at the same standard of living that their parents lived. And so I think that's caused a rethink. And then I think you have the the threat of China abroad and how that intersects with the economic war they've been waging on American industry and on the American middle class. So I think that's prompted sort of a, a, a look at American history when we've been in similar situations. The two additional things that I'd like to add, one, the founders and both the founders, the American school proponents, as well as the, the Republican Party in the 19th century would in no way have ever considered this economic tradition to be um, contrary to American liberty or liberties, you know, as protected in the American Constitution. So this is not sort of a statism versus liberty question. Uh, this is American liberty, you know, full stop. Uh, totally consistent with that tradition. And then the second thing is that it, it is unlike other uh, economic kind of ideologies, it's not a dogmat. It's not dogmatically saying protectionism is the only way for all times. It's really a prudential tradition that focuses on history and also your national resources. What is the state of your country's development? You know, vis-a-vis other hostile foreign power- powers, other friendly powers, and you're really it's it's the job of a statesman as friedrich list put it not to sit there with your hands in in your lap but to survey your country's resources and to harness the productive powers of the nation to meet the particular challenges of the day you touch on a really interesting point here which is these kind of false conceptions of liberty in general and what it reminds me of is i was just out in california to speak at claremont institute's constitution day symposium down in orange county and i was, I was preparing remarks on on big tech and kind of the broader threat of the public co-optation of the private sector and literally on my flight from florida out out to california this remarkable opinion dropped from the fifth circuit the court that i that i previously clerked on a case called net choice versus paxton written by judge andy oldham was the was the he wrote the opinion, total stud of a judge, Trump nominee. And in this crazy, like 85, 90 page, just tour de force opinion, Judge Oldham does like a really deep dive on the doctrine of common carrier regulation and how it goes back to the 15th century of common law. And what you said reminded me, because, you know, some of us in kind of like the big tech skeptical crowd, when we start talking about things like antitrust and common carrier regulation, you know, the frequent talking point, you know, I guess I'll just say it from like the Nikki Haley wing of like the party, like the like the like the true, like absolutist kind of dogmatic laissez faire three cheers for capitalism and all cost wing is like, oh, you socialist, whatever. And it's like. It's like, no, I mean, common carrier regulation literally goes back to Sir Matthew Hale in the, in the 1600s. I mean, even further than that, the, the, this case that Andy cites in his Fifth Circuit opinion is a 1400s case from England. Um, antitrust, you know, more in general here, uh, you know, antitrust really kind of came of age uh, in, in uh, American politics through the Republican Party. You know, the, the Sherman Antitrust Act, Sherman is literally the sibling of General Sherman from the Union Army. I mean, that's like as like a Lincolnian Republican Party. Is anyway, I, I, I know I know I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously here. Um, but, you know, in our limited remaining time, I guess, are you, are you optimistic that these ideas that you and I are discussing here are really kind of catching on among kind of the folks that you see on campuses through ISI day to day? Or do you see 
see them kind of drifting back to, I think, what that uh, 2019 first things uh, manifesto referred to as the dead consensus? Or are you, or are you optimistic that, that the dead consensus is actually really dead? I think there's been a sea change in the last five to six years um, on college campuses where I think a lot of these ideas, which, you know, for people like you and me, were maybe more niche kind of intellectual interests have now really seeped down all the way to the campus level. Um, so in that sense, I, I do think there is a, a growing kind of movement of students that would embrace this vision. I would say it depends on the campus that you're at. Um, we, you know, students that tend to be at more, I think, elite uh, institutions, whether those are elite state schools or private schools, tend to uh, be wanting and interested in exploring kind of more radical alternatives to the status quo because they live under regimes that are completely monolithic and enforcing sort of a, a radical progressive orthodoxy. So they're they're very much searching for other traditions to kind of articulate an alternative to the status quo. Then I think you have students at, at uh, you know, broader kind of state schools um, that, you know, may, may in theory be open to some of the ideas, but are kind of, you know, living on the, the, the more, I guess, traditional understanding of, of conservatism or what, whatever the Republican Party might have stood for 10 or 20 years ago. So I think in, in all respects, they're open-minded, but I think in depending on the school and the state, there's different levels of interest. Johnny, just real quick before we let you go, where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find you and ISI? Yeah, I would encourage you to go to, to ISI.org to follow uh, ISI on Twitter. You can also follow me at, at Johnny Burtka. And yeah, that's where I'm at. And I would strongly encourage the listeners to do both of those things. But for now, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Josh. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thanks again to my friend Johnny Burka for stopping by this week. Johnny, again, I cannot emphasize this enough. Please go ahead and check him out and all the work that he is doing at ISI. One of the sharpest up-and-coming thinkers, maybe even up-and-coming is underselling it. I mean, he's basically here. He's, I mean, he's still ascending, but Johnny's just doing great stuff. And, you know, you, you hear his passion. His passion is on political economy, on rethinking right-of-center economics. That, of course, is the passion of our previous guest, Oren Cass of American Compass as well. Johnny touches on other subjects, though, quite a bit. The overarching theme, this is what I want to talk about here, the overarching theme of what folks like Johnny, myself, and our like-minded compatriots on the so-called new right, of what we are trying to do is we are trying to reconsolidate a fractured, balkanized citizenry, basically trying to put the Humpty Dumpty of the American nation state back together again. Now, that nation state has taken a severe beating 
over the past 60, 70 years. Somewhat ironically, as the case may be, as America, based on lots of kind of the macro level economic metrics, GDP and things of that nature in the post-war, post-World War II era, so much of America has really never been better, in particular the 50s and 60s and so forth. But if you look under the hood, if you look a little more carefully, there's a lot that's actually not going very well. Just over the past five, 10 years, of course, deaths of despair, depression, suicide rates, alcoholism, drug overdoses, the opioid pandemic. Not good. Think about immigration for a second here. You know, we are still living in a regime where the Ted Kennedy 1965 INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, we still live in a country where that is basically the law of the land. As far as immigration is concerned, still bringing in one million approximately legal immigrants a year. That has never been revived here. Free trade absolutism, especially in the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall over the past 30, 35 years, really over the entire course of my lifetime, I'm only 33 years old. This idea that we are prioritizing minimization of consumer prices and consumption at any and all costs, no matter what the downstream effects may be for supply chain resiliency, shocks to supply chains, production, industrialization, manufacturing, things of that nature. So we're trying to bring the citizenry back together again. And that's going to entail some outside-the-box thinking. I, I actually wrote a blog post about this a year and a half ago now for Orrin Cass's American Compass group. This blog post was entitled A Consolidationist Agenda for the Right. I want to just briefly actually read from this blog post because it's so relevant to this conversation we just had with Johnny. I, I wrote, quote, The upshot is that these are the economic debates we on the post-Trump right should be having. The family is the single most important institution in American society, provider of a shelter, inculcator of mores, nourisher of civic virtue, and crafter of Republican habits of mind. Any political movement or political party worth its salt when confronted with data evincing the sordid state of the American family ought to respond by substantively prioritizing the American family's institutional rejuvenation. A Republican party that fails to do so is undeserving of a pro-family values label and a conservative movement that fails to emphasize the most indispensable formative institution in the body politic is necessarily incapable of conserving anything meaningful at all. I continued, quote, the post-Trump GOP, the new right, that is, must therefore anchor itself in a sweeping consolidationist agenda across every area of our culture and our politics. The new right must emphasize cohesion, order, civic solidarity, institutional vigor, and a strengthening of the complex web of interdependent duties and obligations without which no polity can cohere. This should be the prism through which we view all social maladies and all possible political, cultural, and spiritual salves for those maladies. That's going to entail some outside-the-box thinking. Previous guest on this, on this podcast has proposed things like a divorce tax. I mean, the state directly putting its thumb on the scale to disincentivize divorce, which, of course, being is a proxy for the disintegration of the family. I'm Josh Hammer. See you next time.